welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Unfair Podcast, a weekly discussion on key trends in investment and economic policy from some of the world's leading commentators. I'm Emma McGarthy, Head of Unfair Sustainable Policy Institute, and today I am joined by David Carlin, who is Head of Risk at the UNEPFI. Today we'll be diving into how we scale transition finance, overcome risk barriers, and expectations for 2024 and the aftermath of COP28. So welcome, David. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's so great to be here and really looking forward to discussing this with you. I think that so much has happened in 2023. And even as we kick off 2024, there's a lot following COP and into into the new year. We're almost halfway done with the decade. So a lot of those 2030 goals are going to be right in focus. Exactly. And COP feels like a long time ago, but actually it wasn't so long ago. So I think it's really good to keep that momentum going and to, to talk about all of these things. So Thank you. And with that in mind, let's uh, let's dive in. So one of the big focuses of COP and one of the big focuses that actually SBI has had over the past year and will continue to have in 2024 is the just transition um, and transition finance. This has been a key topic and, as I said, will continue to be so. So um, I'd love to kind of go into that first, get a little bit of understanding from you on what you think the investment model should be and what's needed to support the scale up of transition finance globally? Yeah, so we we talk about the financing needs right now and we talk about where where we are um, and and where we need to go to get onto that 2030 pathway um, that that will bring us toward deep decarbonization by by mid-century. And I think there've been a lot of headwinds the last just 12 months, 18 months when it comes to interest rates, when it comes to some of the the teething pains in certain areas. And yet at the same time, there's a lot of promising signs. One of the keys is going to be, how do we bring that capital, not just into the clean energy markets? Because I think we're really seeing that happen. I think at present, we're looking at new builds, new deployment of energy being predominantly clean in most of the OECD countries. What we're beginning to also see is financing shifting. We're seeing this was really the last year where finance was actually outrunning or outstripping in, in clean finance the amounts that it would cover for, for fossil fuels. So essentially, we're beginning to see that move in the right direction, that ratio begin to change. But still, we're falling way short. And I think we're falling way short in a number of key areas. In some, those areas are in emerging economies, places that haven't yet built out their grids, places that still are seeing massive energy increases that are needed for demand. Second, I think we're we're not seeing really quite enough in the vehicles of, of blended finance, and we're not really seeing enough of an acknowledgement of the dual role and catalytic role that public and private plays together in, in this space. And so I think those are those are two areas, um, both in terms of where and vehicles. And then finally, I think when it comes to innovation, we're seeing a lot of funding early on and we're seeing a lot of utility scale. That valley of death continues to exist in the decarbonization space. And we're going to need to see a lot of work done to, to make that valley more shallow, to allow people otherwise to uh, to vault over it. And and so that's that's one of the other keys is we're kind of missing that middle between between the institutional and the venture. 
Yeah, and some really positive stories there as well, especially on the, the clean energy front and the, the money that is starting to move into, into clean energy developments and infrastructure in OECD countries. That, that's really brilliant. So to go on to your point on emerging economies and how we can build up their grid, what would you say is needed there? And how can we account for the different capacities? How can we support interoperability and scale the flow of money that is needed to, to build that infrastructure? So if, if I had to think about this challenge in, in three ways, I, I would say having a common language is, is the first one. And that's really where improved work around disclosures, the fact that the International Sustainability Standards Board is picking up and carrying the torch of the task force on climate-related financial disclosures, which as many of us know have, has done so much to, to mainstream climate-related information in financial markets. That continuing fungibility of information, I think, is really key. I think the second piece is going to be de-risking, and, it, and it's really going to be about how do we acknowledge that in many of these places, once we have the data, we may find that these different projects are a lot less risky than we think, but there may be other types of challenges, currency risks, political risks. How do we actually begin to tackle those? And that's really a role where I, I think public finance, where development finance can play a role in beginning to crowd in, to begin to create significantly broader investable universes for the private sector. And then finally, I think the last piece really is if you're thinking about how we do this, it's also going to be really considering impact first and, and, and thinking about what types of financial innovations are going to not only smooth the challenges of say, upfront capital deployment is gonna be harder in one place versus another, and yet beginning to kind of move away purely from you know, the financial metric and toward the impact metric, not that we can't get financial returns, but rather than saying, okay, well, this is 30 billion invested in this, or this is 80 billion invested in this, really thinking as the scoreboard of this being in terms of, of carbon. And what that means is we're going to begin to innovate financial vehicles that are going to smooth out some of those challenges, places that are capital poor, that are going to have long run times, places that have a lot of capital sitting around to deploy. All of those can be really smoothed out through the effective use of financial products, but only if those financial products have an eye toward what the main impact is. Otherwise, it's simply going to be reissuing and reinstantiating some of the challenges that we already see. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think so. You just touched upon some of the barriers there, which we'll go into in a minute. De-risking being or risk more being a core issue. Um, are there any other barriers that you're seeing to scaling up financial flows into emerging economies? And also in a more positive frame, what are the opportunities for emerging economies as, as we start to kind of move this money and, and, and develop these new infrastructures for them? Yeah, I, I mean, the opportunities are really terrific in, in the sense that what you have here are in a lot of ways, ideal growth markets. You have growing populations. You certainly have growing levels of income. You have rising levels of energy demand. You have a lot of the challenges and mistakes that were made in the 20th century in, in kind of the final industrialization of electricity, of, of mass, um, mass production. A lot of that is not fixed in place. And so not only is there a huge climate opportunity, but there's also a, a tremendous opportunity for these markets to expand. We're talking about markets where energy demand could be 3x, 5x what it is today, 
even with efficiency measures. And so there really is a huge amount of need and that, that need is going to need to be met. And whether a firm is a leader in meeting that need or is going to watch as their rivals do it, it is very much going to be down to the strategic decisions they make. So I think there's huge opportunity there. There's also, I think, a greater opportunity than we, we might think in the technological space. There's already a ton of progress going on. But as I said, we're talking about 80 plus percent of new projects that are, are being built in the energy systems being low carbon. We're talking about new technologies that just five, 10 years ago wouldn't have been cost competitive now that are, are significantly growing their share. This is still early days when it comes to deployment, and it's even earlier days when it comes to emerging markets. And so this is about getting a, a good concept and then really thinking about deployment because the scalability is there. It really just both needs the capital and, and it needs the, the wherewithal to, to see this not just as a near-term investment or small ticket item investment, but really something that will continue to grow over time. So, so I, I do see this in some ways if people want an analogy in a non-climate sense, this is really you know looking at other markets, looking outside the US and Europe you know, in the um, 1960s, 1970s, this is the beginning expansion of globalized markets for financial products and for, for goods and services. And so I think we're, we're seeing that again, but we're seeing it happen faster. And we're also seeing the other thing that people maybe ignore in, the, in this space when it comes to emerging markets, but governmental incentives from development banks. We see this all the time talking about Europe, talking about the UK, talking about the US with their policies, but similar and increasingly strengthened policies are coming into play in many countries around the world that are going to provide a really nice tailwind to those that are are working to to develop and deploy. Yeah, and coming from COP28, incentivization seems to be quite a core message, or at least one of the things that I took away from it is uh, the need for incentivization is is super important. So that that's really interesting. Talking about the policies coming into play, what policies do you think are really needed? And maybe we can go into a little bit of the role that the public sector and investors play in, in driving these opportunities. Uh, what, what policies uh, do you think are needed to, to support this growth? Yeah, so I, I would say that the biggest things where, where it comes to policies are really about creating the space for these markets. And, and that means creating a clear signal. So policies that are going to be long lived in nature and, and whether those are things like offtakes of, of energy, whether those are, are potential rebates for, for low carbon consumer technologies, such as electric vehicles and heat pumps, all of those are going to really help deployment because we're still in that phase where we're seeing those repeated growth and repeated doubling of the overall deployment levels. And that's where we begin to see costs fall as well as efficiencies gain. So we're going to continue to, to, to really see that time and again. Um, I, I think that that's you know, one of the most important things to, uh, to appreciate. I, I would also say policies that are going to put a price on carbon are going to be really key. And that's going to be one of the major things that we're going to need to think a bit more about, which is how those prices on carbon um, create incentives within different parts of the economy to take action and, and to move faster. And so that clarity is, is important. And then finally, I think rules around transparency of, of climate data, of footprinting. It's really hard for a market to work efficiently if people can't trust the information, if people don't have the information. And so governments can play a far more 
aggressive and, and perhaps assertive role than even voluntary initiatives can in really making this happen and happen on a, a more rapid time frame. Yeah, yeah. You also mentioned earlier the importance of blended finance. So how can blended finance support this? Uh, what role do the public sector and investors themselves play? And how can we kind of drive better coordination between the two, which I think is, is incredibly important? Yeah, so so blended finance is an interesting topic because when we actually look at it, we hear it a lot more than we see it in the sense that at every major conference I'm at, at discussions of the G20, at COP, at all of these places where, where we're having the discussion, blended finance comes up. It's, the, it's a solution. We need to do it. We have to do this. And yet when we actually look at the amount of finance in the climate space flowing into blended finance, we're talking about about 1% of total climate finance at present. And we're talking about an amount that because of just the variability of deal flows hasn't really risen over the last couple of years. And what that means is we really still have not unlocked the right mechanisms and the right levers. We've seen development in finance and we've seen some of the transformative things it can do. We've seen the work that is going on by, by others in um, private markets to begin moving toward a more sustainable approach in line with various green taxonomies. We haven't really seen the two come together to the extent that they absolutely need to. And so what does that actually look like? I think it means thinking more about off-taking of, of some of that risk. As I said, I think it's providing visibility from a data standpoint. These development finance institutions and multilateral development banks have the information, and it really is helping these organizations not to fly blind. I think that's the big concern and the big risk is that we end up flying blind on these things because we don't know whether that project is risky or not. And in many cases, the diligence itself if it's not the right ticket size, can be costly. So as I said, de-risking the information and then finally scale. I think a lot of the issue is also, as I said, that we have these financial mismatches. We have ticket sizes that are too small. We have a relationship between the diligence required and the overall return that makes it non-desirable. Structuring is a really important piece here. And this is where I think blended finance can come in to get big enough pieces of deals that these aren't demonstration projects, but are real actual financial vehicles that can get into the marketplace and, and find a significant number of buyers. And I think those, those are to me the real three things that, that blended finance needs and, and can continue to work on between the public and private sectors in 2024. Yeah, yeah. And I think we've touched upon this a little bit already with the de-risking, talking about some of the policies that need to be put in place. But from your perspective, what do investors themselves need to drive the allocation, the, the investment, the capital into the projects in emerging markets that, that is needed to support that scale? Yeah, so I, I think that what, what is really going to be needed there is it's going to be on the private sector side, a, a change in, in risk modeling and risk policy, really understanding where we've gotten this right and where we've gotten this wrong, where things are that are risky. There was a great piece of work that came out from the International Energy Agency and a number of academic partners looking at the cost of capital and looking at the fact that for a given deal in an emerging market between a number of, of the major financial institutions, the offered rate on that deal could be a thousand basis points different. That to me is the definition of an inefficient market. And so getting better risk models to better price these things is really key. I think also thinking about what role private actors have 
in developing projects that are going to, to meet some of these goals and how those also align to consumer needs. It's not just that these are things that we do as a financial institution, but also these are what we're hearing increasingly from employees, from customers, from shareholders. And so thinking in that way, rather than simply as a traditional deal, begins to, uh, to, to open up potential new sources of value. So I think those are some of the things that can be done. And then on the, on the flip side of that, from the policy side, as I said, clear signals that this will be supported, that this is a priority. Those are going to be the things that are going to allow patient capital in places like pension plans, in other big institutional investors to put their money there. They're in the business of providing, you know, as the name suggests, a fixed income. And so as a result, there's inherent conservatism. And some of that is actually good. As I said, we do need to change risk models, but we also need to recognize the purpose of these firms. And the only way that's going to work is with better certainty from, from the private side. Yeah, yeah. Um, we touched upon incentivization briefly. I'd love to go into that a little bit more. So how integral do you think incentivization is to, to scaling investment? I think it's really important in the near term in the sense that this gets this treadmill going. It improves the data, which lowers transaction costs. It also creates an ability for for those in the market to begin discerning which are which are actually higher risk, which are lower risk uh, opportunities, and quite honestly, we we almost by definition need incentives because if this simply were a market problem alone, incentives wouldn't be necessary and the problem would be solved. The fact that the problem still exists is evidence of that market failure. Is evidence of the fact that we are not moving. So so what I would say is unquestionably the market is transitioning to a lower carbon state. And I think you can see that in terms of the intensity of a number of different key sectors across the economy. You can see that in where money is being provided. You can see that in terms of what is getting built, but we're still not driving down emissions. And, and so if we wanna move faster, if we wanna go further, then we're gonna need to add some fuel to that. And, and that's where incentives really come in as the way to unlock, to say, okay, that deal was on the margin for returns, now it's positive. Okay, getting that capital is harder, but now that it's accessible at a lower rate for this type of project, super, we have that. And so it's it's really those kind of things that that are going to begin driving that that change. And so incentives I, I see as a catalyst, and and they're not a permanent a, a permanent feature. I think we we really recognize that that early on that may be the process to grow and to scale. But over the longer term, I, I have little doubt that many of these solutions will compete effectively. The goal is by the time they will, we may already be in significant trouble from a climatological perspective in ways that are going to be irreversible on human timescales. And so if we want to go faster, we need to really pour it on now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we need to, to start incentivizing to, to drive the momentum. So yeah, we just had COP. Obviously, that was uh, just before the end of the year. We're now going into 2024. Um, what were your main takeaways from COP28? And what were your thoughts on kind of the outcomes of, of COP? Yeah, so I would say for COP28, the progress that was made was heartening to see around loss and damage. It was exciting to really see the vast majority of the world's nations see the challenge that fossil fuel use presents to a livable climate 
and, and begin thinking about a number of options in order to reduce them. That those are, I think, the good things. The, the maybe not so great things are the fact that this was a small step when, to, to paraphrase Neil Armstrong, we needed a giant leap. If mm -hmm. this were the outcome, say, at Kyoto, or if this were the outcome at the Rio Earth Summit, these would be you know, laudable goals. But the fact is, we are at a place where we need to rapidly get down what I sometimes call that, that double black diamond ski slope of, of emissions. And if you're going to get down there, you're really going to need to make your turns. You're really going to need to get started. And waiting and backing up is only going to take longer. And so what might have been effective when we had the bunny hill to go down is not necessarily going to meet the moment of today. And so I think what we've recognized, though, is that the COP process is a critical process. But on the 350 days of the year when COP doesn't take place, we really need to be thinking about how do we act as individual governments, as private sector actors, as communities of nations, and realize that COP is itself almost by design an incremental and slow moving process. And one, not to disappoint ourselves by expecting breakthroughs when, when it almost structurally is designed to, to avoid major change, but also to recognize that there is something still meaningful about it. So my view is we need to do more than COP and waiting around till COP is, is not a solution. I think we've seen that shown time and again. At the same time to those that say COP doesn't matter, forget about it. The fact that nations that are either major producers or consumers of fossil fuels are willing to fight so hard to keep certain language out tells you that there still is an appreciation and a meaning for that final tax, that people really do care and that it does change the discourse. The fact is we've been living in this post-Paris world the last nine years now, and that has mattered. It has mattered in terms of the agreements we set. It's mattered in terms of the agenda for the G7, for the G20, for work that's gone on at country level. And so these things do matter. But if you're expecting to get the kind of final playbook to fight climate change, I think we've been disappointed enough times now that it, it's one, not great for your emotional health, but two, <laughs> it's it's also really too late an hour to be, uh, be leaving this simply to the negotiated process. Yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, a very pragmatic and, and good view of it. With all of that in mind, what are your hopes for 2024 and how we can move forward, how we can progress things in a, in a speedy way, how we can make the achievements and, and progress in a way that we, that we need to? Yeah, so my thought for 2024 is really to see this as a year where the private sector gets serious on the drivers of climate change, because I think what we've seen are a lot of the positive second order signs and those second order signs, as I mentioned, are around deployment, around investments, around new technology and innovation. All of that is great, but we still have to remember what is causing the planet to warm. What is driving climate change is coming from human driven emissions. It's not coming from something that we can solve simply by doing more of the good. Until we really think about it as, as a problem of, of getting to zero, we, we have to realize that that is, is the ultimate thing to have in our sights. And I think what that means is 2024, we need to see stronger policies around fossil fuels. We need to see a clarity of vision of how 
organizations will work with their partners to decarbonize to see when this gets phased out, what this actually means in terms of strategy. Those are going to be, I think, a lot of the the guiding and and, and driving exam questions for us to tackle. And so from, from that standpoint, I think that's where we're we're at at present. And and what I'm hoping is that in the next the next months ahead, we'll also see policymakers realize that this is going to require political courage. The challenge of policy, whether you're in, in a democracy or not, is that the response time to, to a policy really matters a great deal. And so these are challenges that we may see some progress or some early signs, but the ultimate difference is going to be made on the order of years and even on the order of decades. And that's that forward-looking and foresightedness that we always look at and we always cite as the examples of great leadership. We're going to need that kind of great leadership. Politically, we're going to need that kind of great leadership to, to drive these things forward because we're, we're really needing both the private sector commitments, but also, as I said, those public actors to really make sure that their position is clear and that they are thinking not just about the next election, not just about the next meeting, but really about their future and, and that of the countries that they're representing. Yeah, I think political courage is a is a great way of putting that. So thank you. And I think that's that's a good point to to end the conversation, but hopefully just the beginning of the conversation and hopefully a lot will happen over 2024. Thank you so much for for joining me today, David. Really, really appreciate it. Really my pleasure. And it was great to be here. Looking forward to uh to doing some events. Thank you. Uh, both in person and 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 virtually over the months ahead as well. Absolutely. And thank you to our listeners. You can subscribe to this and all other OnFit podcasts on our channel on Spotify and iTunes. Thank you for listening to the OnFit podcast.